0: Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Chris Klomp, CEO of Collective Medical, about care coordination and quality improvement. And now, on to the show. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Chris Klomp, who's CEO of Collective Medical. Welcome, Chris.
1: Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: No problem. And wanted to. Uh, we're going to talk today about uh, care coordination, uh, and improving quality, but I wanted to start things off by just uh, having you tell me a little bit about Collective Medical and what it is you do?
1: Glad to. In brief, uh, Collective is a Salt Lake based uh, developer uh, that provides the nation's leading real-time care collaboration network. Uh, so our focus is on care notification, activation and, and collaboration. And we provide a platform to providers of varying types and acos health plans other stakeholders uh, in an effort to streamline care transitions improve care coordination reduce unnecessary length of stay and admissions uh, all in an effort to improve patient outcomes at lower cost and we do that by leveraging small amounts of real-time information that could include admin discharge transfer and counter information but also other clinical context in an effort to close the communication gaps that so often persist across care settings, uh, across multiple stakeholders who need to care for the patient, but that ultimately undermine that patient's care. And so we operate a network of uh, well over a 1,000 hospitals and health systems, tens of thousands of other uh, provider types spread across acute, ambulatory, and post-acute care settings. We work with every national health plan in the country, and uh, many dozens of accountable care organizations uh, and regional health plans as well. And everyone is ultimately focused on this notion of highlighting critical insights at the point of care in an effort to enable each stakeholder to pick up where the last left off.
0: Great. And obviously, the issue of, of care coordination has been around for a long time, but, you know, Tell me a little bit about how important it is to the quality of patient care. You
1: know, it is, but uh, like so many phrases in, in healthcare, and you surely, you know, I know from, from some of your prior interviews, I'm, I'm sure you've encountered this uh, in, in your own experience. In healthcare, we tend to use a series of buzzwords <laughs> that mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And so you could probably park a thousand different companies under the bucket of care coordination. Mm -hmm. Uh, And obviously, at its most conceptual level, of course, it's important to coordinate care. Uh, And so I think about this a bunch of different ways, uh, which may or may not be particularly articulate. But, you know, back in the day, in the land of white picket fences and small towns, you had a small town dock, and uh, you you had the neighborhood uh, telephone tree. And if little Timmy fell out of a, a tree and broke his arm, Everyone knew about it, and you know, the 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 small town GP you know took care of it. And if you needed to go to the hospital and get an X ray, that happened. And and you know there was not a tremendous need for coordination. Oh, by the way, the neighborhood rallied behind and bring apple pie and dinner <laughs> to the family, and you know everything was was uh, you know peaches and roses. But nobody, nobody had to uh, wear a mask yeah yeah exactly and and everybody walked downhill uh you know both ways to school and uh, always with shoes and everything was perfect it was absolute uh, utopia uh definitely no mask uh, but as, as healthcare has advanced uh one of the marvelous things that's happened is that we've increased our level of specialization and so we continue to have the essential role of the primary care provider, and. Largely, as a system, we've designated that individual as being the quarterback for the care of of uh, the patient. Uh, but but their job also then is to coordinate uh, uh, potentially a large team of players, um, each with very specific specialization, and that's marvelous. It has led to tremendous improvements in uh, uh, you know longevity and health so on and so forth. obviously it's led to, I think, a proliferation in cost as well. And we can have a very separate debate about the efficacy of some of those efforts on a cost adjusted basis. That's not the point of the conversation, but uh, with that has led, or I think generated a series of unanticipated, even if they could have been anticipated, but unanticipated negative externalities, which means you have many stakeholders, each is focused on his or her particular purview, And yet for the system to work effectively for the good of the patient, and by the way, also to work efficiently in a cost-effective manner, that requires a tremendous amount of coordination. And it's a little more complicated than just charging the GP or the primary care provider uh, uh, you with playing the role of the quarterback and calling a single play. And so, uh, you know, how do you manage your patients if you don't know where they are, what's wrong with them, who their doctor is? you know, care coordination has arguably never been more important than today and arguably never more important than today in the current pandemic state, in which we find ourselves.
0: And, I mean, and obviously there's a lot of different, uh, you know, points of care. You know, you, you may have a patient who starts off in the hospital, you know, maybe goes to rehab, maybe he's in uh, long-term care and then on home care. So there's lots of ways for information to get, I guess, uh, either misinterpreted or, or not communicated properly. Is, is, is that are you seeing a lot of that uh, sort of in, in your line of work?
1: Yeah, I, there are really there are two specific problems here. There's one of technical interoperability, and I think you have just described that in part, which is how do I ensure that essential patient data moves across care settings A, B, C, and D if care settings A, B, C, and D are all necessary to restore the patient to the target state of health. Uh, And then there's clinical interoperability, which is, well, how do I ensure then that that information isn't lost through the cracks, assuming it is otherwise available, and that the key insights that would trigger particular decisions to be made by specific providers at each of care settings, A, B, C, and D, are made in the appropriate sequence with the appropriate context, in a fully informed way that also doesn't lead to medically unnecessary duplication of effort duplicative tests duplicative imaging so on and so forth and so those are two really challenging problems uh, uh, and yet both are essential to solving this notion of quote-unquote care coordination we're not there's not a dearth of data we are awash in data mm-hmm. that's not the problem the the, the 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 trick is how do we get signal Instead of noise, in front of those best positioned to take action on that signal for the good of the patient at the lowest cost possible. So that's what we're focused on, and I think as a as a community, as a industry, that's what we need to continue to be focused on.
0: And on the technical side, uh, I mean, a lot of it is you've just got people, or, or I guess uh, organizations, using a lot of different systems, and you know that don't necessarily speak to each other.
1: Correct yeah I, I think you could you we can let's let's do it actually let's list out uh, a series of challenges from a technical interoperability perspective you listed one which is which is incredibly impactful perhaps the most we have a variety of different systems they don't talk to one another uh, you know when you know the old adage of when you've seen one ehr you've seen one ehr is true right different instances of the same brand of a electronic health record Look and feel very differently. They record data very differently. There are a tremendous number of user-defined and configured fields, uh, uh, even though they may technically adhere to a given standard, such as you know HL7 2.3 version 3. Dot, whatever. Uh, so, so that's a set of challenges. Obviously, then using a common ontology by which to map that data. Uh, how we use a common reference range so that results, for example, uh, as recorded at one facility, are comparable to results recorded at another facility, where the very various tests that may be used uh, use different reference ranges or refer to things differently. How do we think about systematizing all of this uh, with very imperfect humans who uh, don't typically speak and think and write in perfectly systematized, structured ontologies, uh, which by the way, makes us interesting and, and keeps it interesting and, and kind of helps the world go around from a social perspective, but, <laughs> but doesn't work so well when you're trying to get data to be normalized and ensure that, you know, data from five hospitals across town, in fact, all speaks to one another. So I think that's another set of challenges. Uh, so there's, there's the data out problem, uh, there's the data normalization problem, there's the data back in problem, Uh, Those are all big technical challenges. And then there's the, oh, by the way, uh, regulatory and illegal and liability challenges, which is to say, okay, let's pretend all of that data is available and it's all perfectly shiny and flawless with uh, no confusion and it's all apples to apples, no exceptions, uh, except that it was originated at various points of care. Well, if you're the chief privacy officer or chief compliance officer or general counsel of a hospital, you've established a series of processes and procedures and and, and stage gates to ensure that uh, quality information is recorded within your own systems by authorized individuals who are qualified to be there and, uh, and and that they're double-checked when they need to be double-checked so that the information, the integrity of the information that sits within your system is reliable and provides an appropriate basis for which or by which to make uh, clinical decisions on behalf of the patient. But now we're saying, well, actually, let's also take a bunch of information in from a whole bunch of other stakeholders, many of whom we don't know and we haven't met and may not adhere to our same quality standards, but we're going to ingest their information, their data, because it's all part of that patient's record. Uh, but by the way, they may have different uh, I, I different quality levels. And yet we're potentially going to now, as practitioners, make decisions. Uh based on that information, and not all of those decisions may be right, and they could lead to suboptimal outcomes for the patient, and if that's the case th- that leads to patient harm, uh, reliable potentially, and so how do we manage that? How do we ensure that there's a quality control process and that if a piece of information gets written to our EMR, uh, we feel good about that, and it's now therefore reliable. Otherwise, we're shifting yet more burden. Onto our providers to need to parse through that information, and, and so I think this is why we continue to see lots of duplication of testing, uh, even though something's already been done at another location, and and those are not challenges that are necessarily solved from a purely uh, technical interoperability perspective. That moves into clinical interoperability, frankly, legal interoperability, and uh, so, so this is complicated, and yet all of this is necessary. This is like this is like the basic table stakes of care coordination. So where do you start? What do you do? What are you trying to accomplish?
0: Well, yeah, and and it it must be a a massive undertaking just as if you, you know, if you take on a a new client, whether it's a hospital or even hospital system, which is even more involved, you know, how long does it take you to get the lay of the
1: land and then start to turn things
0: in the right direction?
1: Well, uh, to be clear, as much as I'm, I'm eager for us to do more and more, uh, collective is focused on, I think, a very – we, we focus with a very narrow aperture on a specific area of, quote-unquote, care coordination, and that is we're, we're operating in a world where we see tremendous progress and execution by health information exchanges across the country who have learned, learned from prior mistakes, who have continued to improve their services, who have continued to improve and refine the quality of data That they're able to extract transform and then reload back into another system moving it from point a to point b we also see really robust national trust frameworks like commonwealth and care quality which are increasingly becoming more sophisticated and capable so we operate under a set of assumptions of the data is going to continue to uh, become resolved through massive utility scale industry-wide efforts that we're also helping propagate but that we very much support and rely upon, and we're going to focus on a more narrow aperture of, uh, okay, what is the what are the problem sets we want to accomplish for us uh, and our clients? Those are, we want to make sure that a provider understands where their patient is. Uh, uh, we want to make sure that a provider understands where their patient has been, and we also want to make sure their provider understands where their patient may. Go or need to go. And then we need to help that provider be aware in a way that works for them from their own clinical workflow perspective and doesn't become an encumbrance uh, or an annoyance uh, or worse, a detriment uh, to their, their quality rendering of care. How do we package the right information with the most appropriate context of the patient with the right flags or asks of what we'd like them to do? And, uh, and deliver that at the right frequency, the right timing, and via the most optimized modality for their specific clinical and technical workflow needs so that we can help them answer those questions so they understand where is the patient or where are your patients at any given point in time, which represent risk that you should be focused on as a provider, and how do we help you and or others by providing you the appropriate context necessary for you then to take action confidently to intervene on behalf of the patient to mitigate that risk. And so that might sound like a lot, but it's actually a pretty narrow focus. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that focus leads to success. So rather than the field of dream style, if you build it, they will come, we take a very different approach, which is, Let's start with the least amount of information necessary, with the fewest stakeholders necessary, with the least amount of behavioral change required in order to affect the series of workflows to solve a very specific pain point or problem for a client or community. And as we, as we post wins, as we accomplish those uh, objectives, then let's expand iteratively from there. So we have this principle called relentless incrementalism. We take a highly incremental repro- approach, but we pursue that relentlessly until all of a sudden we're starting to affect large-scale change across entire communities, states, or regions. Uh, but 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 starting in you know small and humble circumstances. Does Sorry. that make sense? Yeah.
0: Um, so are you working directly with caregivers in terms of providing the information or
1: very much? Okay. Yes. So so we might. Uh, here's an example. Uh, uh, we might be working, let's actually build on the example you provided. Uh, you've got a patient who uh, is scheduled for a surgical visit at an acute care facility, uh, but who, uh, you know, for, with uh, suffering from osteoarthritis and you the uh but otherwise, you know, relatively healthy, though struggles with a history of COPD. And so based on that risk profile, we're already anticipating that the patient will have a target length of stay of 10 days in a a designated skilled nursing facility, after which they'll be discharged to home and uh, supported for another um, month with uh, periodic home health visits. And so under the usual state of health, what often happens today is, oh, and by the way, that patient, let's pretend that that patient's pulmonologist uh, is not affiliated with the acute care setting uh, or the skilled nursing facility. Uh, that are rendering uh, uh, support for the surgical visit. So under the usual state of health, uh, that patient will go, they have their surgery, it all goes well, no complications. They're uh, carried by ambulance to the skilled nursing facility, potentially literally with a paper chart on their chest, like strapped to their chest. And then it's incumbent on the intaking sniffist at the skilled nursing facility to consume that chart and extract a lot of information, understand the key insights, and then affect care over the next 10 days. Sometimes an inpatient discharge manager may also call over to the to the sniffist and collaborate, and make sure they call out the right information. But again, remember the pulmonologist is not even actually part of that health system. And so COPD may fall by the wayside. And As a result, the sniffist may inadvertently uh, prematurely taper the patient's prednisone dose which triggers a, an episode of shortness of breath that exceeds the level of care, level of licensed care that the sniff is able to render. And so the patient gets loaded up in an ambulance and sent back to the same or a different acute care setting in the emergency room. The emergency doc is sitting there saying, OK, I've never seen this patient before. They may or may not have been to this facility before. I'm going to stabilize the acute presentation, which is shortness of breath as a function of COPD. I'm not really in a position to discharge this patient back to a sniff, much less home. There's liability associated with that. So I'm just going to send them upstairs and, and uh, you know, they'll stay in the inpatient care setting for a you know, couple days and then maybe go back to a sniff or something else that they'll take care of it. So we have all this waste yeah. and it's all a function of communication gaps and everybody's trying their best and everybody's trying to do their thing and and everybody needs to be involved for the good of the patient. But that represents an utter lack of, consistent clinical collaboration. And, and therefore, those communication gaps have undermined care and created care gaps. So we would step in in that instance and say, okay, got it. Uh, surgical visit happens. Uh, we already connected to the hospital. Uh, we're partnered with a, a local health information exchange that's doing excellent work in aggregating clinical records. Analytically, algorithmically, we've already determined the patient has COPD. We see the medication they're on. And so when they are transferred to the SNF, that, 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 that transfer, physical transfer, is accompanied with a virtual transfer of essential need-to-know information for the sniffist Heads up. They just had this discharge. Here's the care team. Uh, here are some notes from that care team. And, oh, by the way, they're on COPD. Here's the dosing. Don't prematurely taper. Do, uh, and now the sniffist is aware and paying attention. But let's say that somehow there's still an issue. The patient still then has to go back to an emergency department. We would also push information directly into that emergency department's EMR right in their track board that says, heads up, uh, here's everything that you need to know about this patient, including history of COPD. Here's the pulmonologist. We've already notified that pulmonologist, the patient's sitting in the emergency department. Here's the dosing that they've been on. You might want to take advantage of it. And oh, by the way, once you've stabilized the shortness of breath, patient just came from this sniff. We've already notified them. Their care coordination is going to contact you so that you can send the patient back. And you don't need to send them upstairs to the inpatient care setting we can avoid a 30-day readmit uh, uh, and a lot of unnecessary cost. we can lead to a better outcome we get the patient back home and healthy faster and, and there's not a lot of complexity there it's not like we're you know using we do use deep learning models a lot but but it's not like you even need deep learning models for that particular very simple example but now all of a sudden the team is operating as a single team even though they represent multiple distinct organizations and may never have met one another. So that's a, that's a great example of care coordination. That's what we're focused on.
0: And it's not like it's, yeah, like you said, it's not like it's that complex of a, a
1: thing. It's literally communication, right? You know, it's- This is know, communication. Yeah. It's exactly <laughs> what it is. There is, I'm not trivializing, there's loads of complexity underneath all of this. Absolutely. How do you normalize that data? How do you get the right data in the first place? Uh, how do you access it in a timely manner and make it usable? What analytics do you apply to automate these processes that otherwise need to be managed manually, which is completely untenable and unscalable? Uh, how do you then push this information back into the workflow? How do you even know which workflows to push it into for which stakeholders? How do you even know which stakeholders are on the care right, team right. And, and are relevant to this patient? So there is a ton of complexity behind all of this, but Conceptually, it's literally just how do we get people in the same room talking, yep. so to speak. Yeah. And,
0: you know, and I guess that's just, you know, a, a factor of having such a complex healthcare system that, you know, has so many different pieces, um, you know, and sometimes they don't always connect. So, um, you know, it, it makes sense, you know, that it's done, that it should be done, but sometimes it doesn't get done. Um, Agreed. So, and then, so, and then you whack that situation with something like COVID. Well, yeah, I was, I was just going to go it to that. That's even more complicated. I was just going to go oh, to that. Perfect. So, um, how, you know, how has the pandemic affected, you know, uh, this kind of interoperability and coordination, you know, between all these different, you know, uh, entities in
1: healthcare? Well, first, I think it's it's uh, I I think it's a quote this morning from the CEO of uh, Houston Methodist who said. Effectively, I'm paraphrasing, but effectively, we're going to devote. We need to find a devote that our entire focus to leveraging every resource at our disposal, including all of our technology, to fighting the pandemic and in, in, in improving care. Uh, so I'll skip all the obvious stuff, which is clearly this is routed uh, in you know, the nation's healthcare infrastructure in terms of the fact that very clearly, while we're in this journey and shift toward value-based care, we have a tremendous reliance on. Fee for service, and and likely will for some continued period of time. And when you decimate patient volumes, that has enormous impact on on the integrity of the provider care system in ways that I think expose a higher level of fragility than we may have previously appreciated. Uh, and so, at least we're finding out, we're pressure testing that we can make improvements. Uh, but from a care perspective, I think this is also articulating the notion that uh, the, the the need for healthcare stakeholders to identify, isolate, treat, and trace patients is significant, and there was not robust existing infrastructure in place to do that. Uh, And so uh, there's a need for a tremendous number of tools, separate from virtual care tools, which obviously are also, you know, seeing a a massive uh, increase in demand. I mean, do you feel that... um... You know the
0: pandemic's kind of set us back you know we were obviously still had a lot of work to do you know in this in this area anyways before you know february or march kind of came along but do you feel like you know with this you know certainly uh, concentrated uh you know just overwhelming amount of cases in certain places um has that has that set us back
1: That's a really hard question to answer, and I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, we sit in a unique, from a unique vantage point, in that we work with so many small and large health plans and so many large and small health systems and other providers across the country. And so we're obviously actively engaged in dialogue with them and have been, particularly over the last many months. And we are seeing widely varying responses to the pandemic and how that is influencing individual. Let's focus on health systems, for example, individual health systems, strategic plans uh, in response to uh, risk-taking, fee-for-service population health management and otherwise. And so on the one hand, our end of the spectrum, you see health systems who are saying we are doubling down our investment or tripling or quadrupling it. Uh, These are generally systems that had fairly significant reserves and the ability to weather the storm a little bit better, who are saying we're going to invest in more virtual tools. We're going to invest in more digital health tools. We need even better data than we already had. We need to be able to parse that data in a more sophisticated way than we've been able to do just with our EMRs. And we need to take on more risk because that would allow us to weather this storm more effectively. Right. The payers have done pretty well so far in the pandemic as elective volumes have gone down by and large. There are some exceptions, and obviously there's some idiosyncrasies across varying lines of business, but but so far, pretty pretty well. And that might change obviously as commercial volumes decline with upcoming open enrollments given an increase in unemployment. But that's pretty good. So if you're in a fully capitated risk structure and you're a provider group who's taken risk and is receiving a risk premium uh, to care for a patient population, you might be better positioned in this type of circumstance. So there are health systems who are saying, we're going to lean in, we're going to accelerate our uptick or adoption of risk as an organization and go really hard. There are others who are sitting saying, well, maybe we're we don't have quite the reserves that we did, or we were a little bit earlier in our journey and transitioning toward uh, value-based care and away from fee-for-service or volume-based care. And gosh, this is a really expensive uh, investment. And right now, we just need to focus on keeping the lights on. And so we're going to pause some of those efforts, and and we're going to pull back. I think you. this was very clearly manifest with some of the Medicare ACOs. And their response to uh, you know a willingness to taking on or entering into new or continued risk-based contracts that might start with upside risk only, but eventually shift to some level of asymmetric upside, downside, and even symmetric upside-downside risk with CMS, who are you know we're, we're understandably pausing and saying, we're not so sure we're gonna continue on this journey. But I think CMS very appropriately has been quite thoughtful in saying. Hey, let's extend the measurement periods, let's slow down a little bit. Yeah. And, and we understand this is difficult and, and not wanting to lose uh you know, lose the the forest from the trees and and uh and and lose the progress that we've made. So I think we see both. I, I can't answer the question for you of how will this play out in the net? I certainly hope as a patient and an individual that we continue on our journey to taking risk because I think it leads to better outcomes, and certainly our fee for service system is untenable. In terms of healthcare cost as a percentage of GDP.
0: Well, and, and and obviously we know that to affect any kind of change, you know, industry wide in healthcare is uh, is like you know very incremental. I mean, it's so hard to do, right? So it's you know anything's not going to happen overnight. So it might just take I, a little longer now.
1: I agree. You know, I think the, the the bigger challenge, and I don't think we're spending a lot of time focused on this right now, but it's certainly something that that we are hearing from our users, and there's starting to be some compelling data on the topic. Is you know, we've long since talked about provider burnout, mm-hmm. and it's been really great to watch us as a country and us as a as, as a as a you know planet. Uh, rally around our providers and and those who are on the front line and really celebrate them for the work that they're doing. These are individuals, care teams, who are putting in extraordinarily long hours to keep things under control. They're willingly placing themselves and their families at risk in service of their communities in ways that are uh, very likely and proving to be detrimental to their own health in what I think is a continued reminder of the self-sacrifice that leads uh, the, the, the manifestation of those who, who enter the healthcare profession. And I've long since said that by and large, bad people don't go into healthcare. Good people do who wanna make a difference, who wanna serve uh, uh, their their fellow humanity. And and yet when you look at the data right now, uh, uh, there's some pretty scary studies coming out. Uh, you know, one study assessed the mental health of some 1400 frontline providers this was published, uh, you know, uh, in JAMA, uh, and it found that of those surveyed, fifty percent had symptoms of PTSD, twenty-five percent had symptoms of depression, twenty percent had symptoms of anxiety. A different survey uh, put out uh, of about thirteen hundred nurses, and, and this, this data came, came from an organization called Feed Trail, which focuses on you know employee feedback. Sixty-seven uh, percent of respondents of these nurses. Uh, indicated that they would leave their current facility or quit the industry altogether due to their experience with the pandemic. Wow. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Frontline providers can't continue to perform their best to the best of their abilities under prolonged and seemingly never-ending stress that the pandemic has caused. And, and this is going to be a massive problem if you know over half of the nurses leave the workforce. And I'm hopeful that obviously that won't happen, but you you take that on the supply side, and then you look on the demand side from the patients themselves who are also struggling with uh, symptoms of anxiety and depression and even PTSD. You know, the NSSP found that, that ED visits have declined 42% during the early stages of the pandemic from a mean of, you know, just over 2 million per week to 1.2 million. Uh, you know, this is, this is kind of, you know, march onward. But the patients themselves might be waiting too long and missing the window where care teams could intervene and save their lives. And so could we see an increase in total cost of care and a decrease in quality of health outcomes because patients are scared to go get care because they're not sure that the benefit exceeds uh, you know, the risk? Yeah. It, that's, that's really scary. So then you put that supply-demand equation together and say, okay, got it. That fundamentally has to change how we coordinate care. That fundamentally changes how we have to render care. It probably does accelerate the need for for virtual medicine but only certain number of things can be done virtually, right? Still this is still a high touch proximate, uh, industry. So really, really complicated, but again, underscores the need for increased levels of care coordination to make all of this work where now people can't even be in the same room together.
0: Well, yeah, definitely a lot of, uh, questions that, uh, (laughs) will need answers down the road. Certainly, uh, we're, we're not close to uh, figuring it out yet, but, um, Thank you so much, Chris, for uh, for joining me. I really appreciate it. These are uh, these are definitely uh, some complex issues, and I appreciate your uh, your insights on them.
1: It's my pleasure, Jay. Uh, I, I will just end and say, I'm optimistic. Mm-hmm. This is an industry that, uh, like like our country, went backed into a corner. But this is an industry I think went backed into a corner, fights its way out with innovation and perseverance and dedication to the cause, and. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by how many folks have come together uh, in pursuit of a treatment, in pursuit of a vaccine, how folks are coming together in, in extraordinarily rapid timeframes from a clinical, a technical, a regulatory perspective, figuring out how to get care to the patient. And uh, that's incredibly inspiring to me getting to watch it uh, from, from pretty close to the front lines. It's it's uh, encouraging to me as a patient individual, as a father and husband, and uh, makes me pretty hopeful that we will come out of this stronger than we went into it. I, I, I genuinely believe that's the case. So thanks for visiting with me and talking through it.
0: Thank you. Well said. And that wraps up episode nine of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope to join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.